Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this evening's program at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm uh, pleased to be here on stage in the club's beautiful headquarters, a place I like to call a temple of ideas, to welcome both our in-person and online audiences for uh, tonight's program. Uh, My name is Ken Broad. I'm a founding uh, member of Jackson Square Partners, an investment firm located here in San Francisco. And I'm a longtime and proud supporter of the Commonwealth Club. I'm particularly pleased to support tonight's program through the Ken and Jackie Broad Family Fund. Um, As a longtime fan of the Commonwealth Club and advocate of its civic mission to convene the community on important issues, I'm delighted that the club has returned to hosting in-person public programs. And I think we can all agree this is an absolutely beautiful facility. Um, I encourage you all to learn more about the club and its in-person and online offerings at www.commonwealthclub.org. Um, Tonight's featured speaker is one of my very favorite people in the world, uh, David Crane. David retired from private practice to serve a higher calling in public service by relentlessly focusing on improving California's governance. David is the founder and president of Govern for California, a network of citizens committed to improving California's performance with a particular focus on the California state legislature, both the Assembly and the Senate. What happens in the California legislature impacts every citizen in the state, even more so than what happens in Washington, D.C. Yet few focus on understanding the inner workings of California's state government. Even fewer try to change it. David and Governor for California are making a big difference through persistent efforts to encourage legislators to govern in the general interest uh, rather than responding to special interests. Prior to founding Governor for California, David served as the special advisor to uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. He also served as a director of the Volcker Ravitch uh, Task Force State Budget Crisis. There's literally no one who knows the California budget and the attendant pathologies better than David Crane. Uh, as an example, today's stock market decline tipped the NASDAQ into an official bear market. And David, I'm sure, will convey the dire implications for California's budget as a result of that. Uh, David will be in conversation with Bill Whalen of the Hoover Institution. At Hoover, Bill is the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism and a Research Fellow since 1999. He is a national political commentator on campaigns, elections, and governance with an emphasis on California and America's political landscapes. There could be no better person than Bill to talk to David Crane about these important efforts what he has accomplished, and why we all need to pay attention to uh, his critical work. A final note before welcoming our speakers tonight to the stage, we will be taking questions for David tonight. If you're here on site, please uh, write your questions on the question cards, and they will be collected and brought to Bill throughout the program. If you're watching online, uh, please put your questions in the YouTube chat box, and those questions will be forwarded to Bill. So with that, I'm pleased to welcome David Crane and Bill Whalen to the stage. Thank you, Ken, for that kind and generous introduction. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, last time I was on the stage, uh, Chris Christie was sitting in that chair. Whoa. So before and after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, again, thank you, Ken, for that. And also uh, thank you on behalf of all uh, you and Jackie do for uh, not just tonight's program, but the Commonwealth Club as well. Um, hello, everybody, and uh, thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, it's a delight to have you here, and I believe we're all delighted to be doing this in person, even better without a mm. mask. Uh, well, speakers always could do without a mask, but the audience doesn't. I never understood the fairness of that, but sorry, folks. Um, the good news here, by the way, is that the Commonwealth Club will be doing more events like this in person. Uh, to find out more, uh, go to the website that Ken mentioned, www.commonwealthclub.org. And speaking of the Internet, I'd also like to give a shout-out to everybody who is watching this online as well. Uh, one quick housekeeping note, as Ken mentioned, we will go into audience questions. If you've been here before, you know the drill. I apologize for redundancy. Uh, write out the card, uh, hand it to us, a very low-tech uh, way for San Francisco. If you're watching online, you can participate, too. Uh, go to your YouTube chat box, uh, write in the question, email it in. I'm told they will send it to me. Uh, so, yes, it's a real treat for me to come up to, uh, from Palo Alto tonight to uh, see my friend David Crane, who I've not seen in person in a long time. Wow. Um, you continue to discuss me. You get older, and that hair doesn't go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I'm very jealous about that. As you know, David is president of Govern for California, whose mission is to make sure California's state legislature is responsive to its constituents, more so than special interest. I like to think of David as a Diogenes of Sacramento. Diogenes, of course, the Athenian philosopher who walked around Athens holding up a candle, looking for a few honest men. And that's what David is doing in part, looking for some good, honest lawmakers to make honest decisions about our state. Uh, I've known David for years through his teaching at Stanford. He teaches public policy down on the farm. Also through his service in the state of California during the Arnold Schwarzenegger era. Uh, David, welcome to the club. Welcome back to the club, I guess I should say. Thank you, Bill. And I had no idea that this new facility was here. This is magnificent. So those of you who, now that things are open again, who haven't been here to see this, see this facility should rush down here. It's just gorgeous. Boy, it sure beats having to drive all the way up in the city, which is like hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. So this is a lot better. Uh, good choice of venue, guys. Uh, David, let's begin with your story. Um, you have a background, financial services. You're not a government guy per se, so this is a, uh, a departure for you. But uh, one day you did something rather different. You're not the first San Franciscan, the first San Francisco finance guy to hop in a car and head east on I-80. But usually <laughs> when you do that, you headed to Tahoe. <laughs> But you took the turn off into Sacramento and landed in the governor's office, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Tell us a bit about why you decided to do this and what you learned about government your time there. Um, so actually, politics and policy were really my love in life. It's sort of my avocation when I had a vocation. But I had to earn a living first, so I went into business. And um, But I always had a plan uh, to earn some money in business. And then, you know, when I have a family that we, once we felt secure, go off into public policy. I, it, when I was younger, I wanted to run for office. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm the kind of person who actually read platforms at, you know, national conventions and that sort of thing. And, um, and, uh, but I ended up liking business more than I thought and stayed there longer than I thought I would. I actually thought I'd be there about 10 years. And then for those of you that when you have a family and right. you've got young kids, You don't want to change things too dramatically when they're too young. So finally, by the time I turned 50, which was 2003, that year I was turning 50, I said to my wife and to my business partners that I would be leaving at the end of that year no matter what. Um, And uh, uh, the the serendipitous thing that happened that year was that was also the recall election. But that had nothing to do with my decision. I announced this before the recall came along. Mm -hmm. So the recall comes along and Arnold Schwarzenegger throws his hat in the ring. And asked me if I would help. And Arnold and I had known each other since the late 1970s. Obviously, it was not from bodybuilding. We had actually bonded, <laughs> bonded over politics and policy. When I met Arnold, I'm a lifetime Democrat. Um, when I met Arnold uh, in 78 or 79, whatever it was, it was a very fertile time, like, like most times for political discussion, but very fertile. Jimmy Carter was president. I supported Jimmy Carter. Uh, and I'm happy to explain to those of you who don't understand that why I did. Um, <laughs> Arnold was dating Maria who, uh, Shriver, whose uncle Teddy Kennedy was challenging Jimmy Carter for the nomination, which pissed me off because I thought I was going to lower the odds that Carter could prevail again. Arnold was not a U.S. citizen. Uh, but and so he couldn't vote at the time. But he, 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 were he able to vote? He said he'd probably vote for this guy Reagan. We'd have all these discussions about various issues, and Arnold and I would find ourselves in agreement on virtually everything. Right. And at one time, Maria said, "says you know, because uh, uh, we're always agreeing." And she knows Arnold is likely not a Democrat. She goes, "David, you're not a Democrat." And I said, "Yeah." I'm more of a Democrat than you are. Go back and read the 1960 Democratic Party platform that your uncle John F. Kennedy wrote, and you tell me which one of us is closer to that Democrat. Now, I can't see the audience, so I can't see. But how many of you remember the number one issue in the 1960 Democratic Party platform? The first issue. Anybody? Can they yell it out here? Are you allowed to yell out at the Commonwealth Club? No, that was number two. Taxes was number two. Why? Missiles? Missile gap? The missile, you can't, you're not allowed because you're a, yeah. The missile gap. So the Democratic Party in 1960 uh, was, you know, the sort of like the, you know, the National Defense Party. They claimed that uh, Nixon and Eisenhower left the country at a, at a, um, at a disadvantage to the Soviets. The number two issue was, um, was taxes. In 1962, Kennedy proposed the largest tax cut in U.S. history up to that point in time. And the third issue was civil rights. Well, that is the kind of Democrat that I am, a very strong believer in national defense. Uh, I believe in opportunity. That's where Arnold Arnold and I really met. Uh, He's very much a working class guy um, who believes in opportunity for people and civil rights uh, for both of us and hopefully for everybody. So 
that's how we met each other, and that's what launched our relationship. And uh, we stayed in touch over the years. He throws his hat in the ring, asks me if I will help. I say, sure. I get involved. I'm his economic advisor during the campaign. Back then, the two big issues were workers' compensation and energy, the deregulation of energy. So we focused on that. He was sort of destined to win. There were like 49 people in the recall or something like that. And Arnold was destined to win. And he wins. He appoints me special advisor. And I go up there thinking I know everything. Right. I'm the guy that knew the 1960 Democratic Party platform for the country. I know California politics. And I got up there and I learned it kind of blew me. I just learned knew nothing. And it's stunning to go up to Bruce Rauner, I'm sure, found this out in Illinois when he became governor to go up to a place. You know, the the budget's 300 billion, including federal funds this year. It's the largest enterprise in, in the country, in the state, uh, public or private. And you go up there thinking, you know, something about it. And you don't. And you're a special advisor to the governor. It's frightening. Let's talk about how it's run, though, the difference between private sector and public sector. Well, uh, it's so it's a monopoly, right? It's supposed to be that way. And it's a monopoly we all kind of want, because in the absence of, you know, if trying to overthrow that monopoly, uh, that's a revolution. And it's not very good for capitalism and 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 all the rest. And which I'm also a believer in. So um, the other thing that I learned, in addition to learning, I didn't know that the legislature was a truly a co-equal branch of government and the governors really didn't have that much power. They could stop things, but they couldn't get anything done without the consent of at least 62 members of the legislature. The other thing I learned is it's unbelievably difficult to be a legislator. So everybody criticizes legislators. Yet you try and imagine what this is like. And my co-teacher at Stanford is a former state assembly member, Joe Nation, who represented Marin County. And you go up there, you knock on every door in your district to get elected. You're almost like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. He really did believe in everything he said. He goes up there and virtually the first thing that the speaker says to him is, welcome to the assembly. Go raise me effectively $100,000. And you, you learn as a new member of the assembly, you're one of only you're one of 80 people. You are one of 80 people. Even if you're a Democrat, you're one of 60. Now you have no power. You're nobody. And the only way you get power is by be getting becoming eventually a chair of a juice committee like appropriations or something like business and professions is another powerful committee or playing a major role in deciding who's going to be the speaker, who then determines who's the majority leader and the chairs of all the various committees. And how do you become a powerful person inside a legislature right. where to get anything done. You're one of 80, right? To get anything done, you got to get 40 other people in that body to agree with you. Then you got to get 21 in the other body, the Senate to agree with you and the governor and every one of them wants something in exchange from you. The way you get ahead is the way Lyndon Johnson got ahead. If you read Robert Caro's books, The Path to Power, which I should have read before I went up to Sacramento, explains that that's what, you, what it's like for a legislator, right? And, and that's a really difficult world to operate in. So before we go on further, let's do a little civics test with our audience. This is a smart audience, a well-read audience. Who's the Speaker of the House of Representatives? No, the Assembly, not nope, the House. No, the House of Representatives. Oh, the U.S. House, okay. Who's the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives? Okay. Who's the Speaker of the California State Assembly? Nope. Really well done, Bill. That was really good. That was... Who is it, David? It's Anthony Rendon from Los Angeles. And Tony Atkins is the president pro tem of the Senate. But what Bill just did is a perfect way to demonstrate. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's particularly fun being at Stanford where everybody, you know, all these bright people on the campus. When I worked for Governor Schwarzenegger, I was, I was on the campus often. And I was also on the board of High Speed Rail and a supporter of High Speed Rail. And I'd be at the Stanford campus and I'd get uh, an earful all the time from people about high-speed rail. They hate it on the peninsula. The, the, the notion of high-speed trains going through the peninsula was just anathema to people on that campus. And they'd be saying to me this and that about the high-speed rail, and I'd say, you know, you make a lot of good points. Who's your state assembly member? And they'd look at me and they'd go, well, I, I think that's NASU. i say, no, no, not your congressperson, your state assembly member. Well, it was now it's Mark Berman, but they had no idea who their state is. So then I'd say, OK, well, fine. Who's your state senator? And they'd look at me like I was nuts. And they'd say, well, that's Feinstein or Boxer back then. I say, no, no, no. Your state senator, that state assembly member and that state senator have more impact, as Bill said earlier, on the lives of Californians 
than the, the U.S. senator and the, and the uh, uh, member of Congress in their district. Now, I want to get to Governor for California in a minute, David, but I want you to briefly walk us through two episodes that occurred to you in terms of how you ruffled feathers. In 2006, the legislature removed you from the board of the California State Teachers Retirement System. Why don't you briefly tell us what CalSTRS is and what you did wrong? So, um, so CalSTRS is the second largest pension fund in the country, and pension funds have no liabilities of their own. They're, they're effectively a trust. They manage assets uh, to pay pensions, which are earned and, and uh, you know, teachers are counting on. And these pensions are not huge either, by the way, these individual pensions for these teachers. And in 2005, Arnold appoints me to the board, uh, and I innocently go on the board. I'm sort of financial to a fault, and I ask for the math. You know, I ask for, like, uh, the internal math about the liabilities, et cetera, and they take them a long time to get it to me. I mean, this is a massive amount of uh, a massive organization. They get it to me. And in a subsequent meeting, I innocently say we have a problem. We are reporting our liabilities at about half their real size. Um, and the way they were doing that, I don't, don't want the eyes to glaze over here. We'll lose our audience if I go into detail. But the, the reason the way they were doing that was they were discounting the liabilities at about twice the rate that they should have been discounting the liabilities at. And that understates the liabilities by half. So liabilities that were $400 billion, they were saying we're only $200 billion. So I said, we're understating our liabilities by $200 billion. <clears throat> And uh, we're also overstating the amount of money we're going to earn on our assets that are invested to meet those liabilities because we're invested, we're assuming an investment return that requires the stock market to basically reach $29 million by the end of the century. Uh, and I won't bore you with that math either. And uh, so I said, but, but it's not a problem that we can't solve right now. And all we have to do, this is 2005, is drop our investment return assumption from 8% to 6.2% and make our pension contributions based on that investment return assumption and everything will be fine. If we don't do that, then we will have massive deficits in school districts in about a decade. And about two months later, I was kicked off the board by the state Senate uh, because, um, and I don't blame them, the government employee unions did not want people paying attention to the fact that the liabilities were understated and the investment earnings that they were expecting were understated and the investment earnings were overstated. So they had a hearing in the state Senate and they threw me off. My fellow Democrat, the only people who voted for me were the Republicans, not the Democrats. <laughs> okay. Fast forward to 2010. This time, Arnold appoints you to the UC Board of Regents. not sure if Arnold's your friend or not at this point. Yeah. doing this to you, by the way. But he points you to the Board of Regents. This time, you're not kicked off the Board of Regents. The legislature, though, doesn't give you a... The way it works is you get appointed to the board, then the legislature considers you for a full term. The legislature would not take up your appointment. Correct. not give you a full term. What? Why do they do this? So in that case, so, so as Bill mentioned, you know, when you get appointed to either one of those boards, you go on the board immediately, you start serving. The legislature has a year in which to act. They can either act and confirm you for a full term, they can act and throw you off, which is what they did to me after 11 months on the CalSTRS board, or they cannot act at all, in which case you go off quietly at the, full, the end. The full term is what, 12 years? 12 years for the regents. I think it was four years for the CalSTRS. Mm -hmm. So we knew when Governor Schwarzenegger appointed me to the regents board, I would never be confirmed. Right. And the whole reason that we did it, it was towards the end of the term, was there was an opening and I wanted, we wanted to at least get the math. UC is a separate corporation. So it's run, you know, the, the state knows a good deal about it, but not as much as you know if you're inside of it. So I really wanted to understand everything about UC. And so they put me on. And then Arnold uh, left office. Governor Brown um, uh, becomes governor. And I immediately told his chief of staff, you do whatever you want. If you want me to get off right now, I will. Whatever you'd like me to do. And they just left me there. And I quietly went off after a year, which was a smart thing to do. Because if they'd had a hearing, it probably would have worked to my advantage. <laughs> um, and uh, so I went off quietly at the, at the end of the year. And during that year, I got all the math I needed to get about UC. Okay. Does this, you mentioned the word monopoly earlier. Does this suggest that there's a certain monopoly in Sacramento just to the way things were done? It's the way things are done, and it's a self-inflicted wound. So governments are by their nature a monopoly, and we want that. We, we don't want anarchy. Um, what I discovered is, you know, I mentioned earlier, I didn't know that the legislature was truly a co-equal branch of government. and didn't even know the names of all the legislators. You learn that there are groups who are paying attention, whereas 
they would never, if we were in an audience of the people that are paying attention, and if Bill Whalen said, what's the name of the Speaker of the Assembly, every one of them would say, out that, say that name, and they'd be embarrassed if they didn't know it. Those groups, for them, the state government is a business in many ways, and they fall into three categories. The first category are those who collect money from the state, and you can't blame them for caring. Those are mostly right. government employees and healthcare corporations who together will collect roughly 70 cents of every one of the 300 plus billion dollars we will spend this year. So if you're a prison guard, for example, there are 62,000 employees in the corrections department in California. They're attending to about 97,000 inmates. You, the taxpayers of California this year, will spend about $7 billion on the salaries for those 62,000 employees, and another three and a half, four, five billion dollars on the benefits for them. You can be sure that the unions representing them know the names of every legislator and are paying attention to what they're doing, and you can't blame them. They are not bad people. That's their business. They know the names of every legislator. Healthcare corporations who this year will collect 120 billion from Medi-Cal, um, mostly managed care corporations and hospitals and others, you can't blame them. They know the names of every legislator because they're collecting a ton of money from that legislature. The second group, or I characterize them sort of as the crony capitalists. Legislators write 29 codes, everything from the business and professions code to the labor code to the environment code, the education code, all the rest. It's a, it's a really massive responsibility. Crony capitalists, I don't want to offend anybody here, but they're, they're, they're just doing their job. The Dental Association, the California Medical Association represent about a third of doctors. They know the names of every legislature, legislator because they want the, the code provisions to be written in a way that preserve or enlarge their moats. And then the third group are the regulated entities, PG&E, and you can't blame them either. That leaves, leaves 39 million Californians who do not pay attention. And your legislature this year already, they just reconvened in January, they've already introduced 2,115 bills, which is fewer than they normally introduce right. in any year. Um, you're not paying attention to every one of those bills, but those other groups are because this is their business. And that is the other thing I discovered. If you're going to play in this world, if you're going to de defend the general interest, if you're going to resist the special interest, you have to know it as well as any business you're ever in. And it's a small town in many ways built on relationships and kind of intimacy. When the governor was caught dining at the French Laundry, it was a good example of yep. this. It was the governor, his wife, uh, a political consultant friend of his, but also a top lobbyist for a medical center, the CMA or something like that. This is how Sacramento works. Very instructive and uh, to f for this audience, and not because the governor was caught there, but more about who was there. Right. So this is Sacramento, and again, I, I don't like people to think that we're blaming anybody about this. This is their business. But at that dinner were two representatives of CMA. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to offend if there are doctors or other. California Thank God for the doctors. California Medical California Medical Association, which represents about a third of doctors in California, is a very active, long-term uh, Sacramento interest. And they had two people at that dinner with the governor. And that is one way of projecting power. I've likened it a bit to the Wizard of Oz. You know, if you pull back the curtain, you'll see there isn't that much power. But to most people, including legislators, CMA will be very powerful. And one of the ways that they can convey that is there were two people at that dinner. Not that they were expecting it to get out there, you know, but everybody kind of knows these things. And that's the, uh, a, a big part of Sacramento as well as presence. The other thing I learned, I, I'm working in the Capitol and I'm seeing the same people every day. And it's not just the legislators. And the people I learn over the years are lobbyists right. or representatives of those special interests. So you're seeing the prison guards there every day in the Capitol. You're seeing representatives of the oil industry every day in the Capitol. That's who legislators are seeing as well. Right. That has a big impact on, on their ability to operate. Have term limits made this worse, David? Um, we keep changing term limits on California. It used to be that you could only do, I think, what, eight years in the uh, state Senate and six in the Assembly, and then we've changed that so you can do 14 in one chamber. But the argument against term limits is that a member cannot sit on the same panel for you know, 14, 20 years, develop institutional knowledge. That member, therefore, if they're new to the panel, is much more at the mercy of lobbyists and people outside the Capitol to give them information. So where are you on term limits? I agree with you. First of all, it's 12 years. The current law is 12 years in either body. Um, and I'm embarrassed. I voted for term limits when they first came out and when it was a ballot measure many years ago. Right. Um, 
it is a big mistake. What you want in the ideal world is you want 60, at least 60, 62 Abe Lincolns in the California legislature, and you want them there forever once you get them. Mm-hmm. You, you, you really do. And you want them to be knowledgeable and immune from the influence of people because they get their own power. But the, in that case, you want them to be exceptional people like an Abraham Lincoln. In the world that legislators go into now, and it's better than what it was when it was six and eight, you know, six years in the assembly was just brutal for somebody. You, the, you go up there the first two years, you, you're raising money, you're learning how to do things. The next two years, you're still learning. And then the last two years, you're looking well, for you your You also get seat. in your first two years, you file future campaign committees. You announce, you yeah. file a committee saying I'm running for an office in four years. So, so it's very difficult, tough enough job to begin with, <clears throat> very difficult in a world where you're going to get, you're going to lose what you've learned after a relatively small period of time. Now, 12 years is enough. They can do a lot in 12 years. Right. Okay. The search for Abe Lincoln's that takes us to govern for California. So, so governor, so when I, you know, I'm working for governor Schwarzenegger, learning that I knew nothing, uh, and, and learning every day, what I didn't know, there are two big things that I did eventually learn over those seven years. One was that we had to change the rules under which legislators were elected. Uh, and I had nothing to do with the power of getting this done. I was just a policy person. Governor Schwarzenegger and others got it done, and the voters voted for it. But we have independent redistricting, so we no longer have gerrymandered districts. Mm-hmm. And you can really see the impact of that this year um, from the new census in California. And we have uh, nonpartisan primary, uh, otherwise known as non, uh, a top-two primary, open primary, which very importantly changes the shade of Democrat in a very blue state. It also changes the shade of Republican uh, in Republican districts, but most important is the shade of Democrat. And then I learned that the third leg of the stool was to finance legislators. Initially, I thought just to get them elected. Later, I learned it was more important to actually provide them with post-election uh, financing. So after Governor Schwarzenegger left office in April of 2011, I launched Govern for California. And the name is sort of like a a play on Teach for America. It was like, Teach for America, Govern for California. Let's get legislators who will govern for California. And launched it to support legislators who would be that Abe Lincoln type. And talk about being, I still hadn't learned enough. I thought at that time, there are people in this audience who know me well and knew me from the very beginning of Govern for California. I literally said, if we can elect six people to that legislature, we will fix California. <laughs> Just six. Just elect them. That's all we need, six. Right. Completely wrong. Not only do you have to elect more than six, electing them doesn't even half the battle. Once they get there, you've got to help them inside the legislature. Otherwise, they will have to turn to the special interests for all that post-election financing. So that's what government... So fast forward to today. Mm-hmm. Government for California is 11 years old. Uh, we have 11 people in Sacramento. We are right across the street from the Capitol. Uh, four permanent staff, and then we have seven contract lobbyists. We're a network of more than a thousand political philanthropists, which is it sounds like a Tony word. We got to come up with a better word for that. <laughs> who support legislators who govern in the general interest, and we donate to lots of legislators, both Democrats and Republicans, including many we don't always agree with. So, David, how do you decide who is worthy of your endorsement, your support? Is there a questionnaire? Are there certain litmus tests you apply to them? What What's the standard? There's no questionnaire. Um, we barely even listen to what they say. And the, 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 the reason we do that, and this is another lesson I learned, there's, there's, hardly, there's no greater arbitrage, I don't know what the right word is to use, but between what legislators say and what they actually do. And the other thing I learned is that the reason legislators say things, or today it's more often tweet things, is because constituents and others tend to pay attention to what they say. So they can signal all kinds of things based upon what they say or tweet, but special interests pay attention to what they do. So, you know, I mentioned they've already introduced 2,000 bills. Mm -hmm. In the average year, they will pass 1,000 bills, and governors on average will sign 82% of those bills. Mm -hmm. We read every one of those bills that are introduced. So, sort of the special interests, but constituents don't do that. Don't do that, and constituents will pay attention to what they say. So we don't do issue questionnaires. We don't ask questions. We we base it. We ideally they're based upon behavior they've done exhibited in the past. Maybe they've been on a school board, or they've been in local government, or something like that. Uh, that isn't always the case. Initially, when we formed Government for California, and I thought we needed six people. 
-hmm. We had five qualities we were looking for. Intelligence, financial literacy, legislative temperament, which we should come back to, uh, I've, I've mentioned a little bit earlier, the ability to win, and courage by which we mean Ultimately, they care about something greater than themselves. If, if that last one is about, if you um, read Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, her, her book on Team of Rivals, or saw Spielberg's film about that, and you watched Daniel Day Lewis play the role of Abraham Lincoln, you saw that he cut all kinds of deals. Right. Yeah, make this person a postmaster, or this person this, to get their vote. All kinds of things you wouldn't want to have to do. Ultimately, he cared about something much greater than himself. And that's the kind of person we wanted when we were, and we still do, when we're helping elect someone. But now we will support people who we, we believe will, on various issues, be good for their districts on those issues. So we will support people who, on the one hand, are great for expanding scope of practice, which is a very important issue we should also address if we have time but might be very close to the prison guards union, who we oppose all the time because they get all these unwarranted salary increases. We support that person. Right. Okay, repeat those five qualities again. Intelligence, mm -hmm. financial literacy, right. legislative temperament, mm -hmm. ability to win, mm -hmm. and courage. Okay, four of those are pretty straightforward. Explain legislative temperament. Um, so I described earlier what it's like to be a legislator. Uh, to get anything done in the assembly, you got to get 40 other people to agree with you. And then you get 20 in the other, 21 in the other body, the Senate, to agree with you. And every one of them wants in th something in exchange from you. Why? Because they're in exactly the same situation. And what do they always need? Imagine what it's like being a, a, a legislator. Uh, take someone you don't know as well, Miguel Santiago, who represents the Skid Row District of Los Angeles. From an electoral standpoint, what he always has to worry about is an attack on his left flank. He's in a very liberal area whatever you would call that area of Los Angeles. And remember I said earlier how people pay attention to what politicians say? Well, politicians will attack him all day long if he doesn't look lefty enough. So what will Miguel have to do? Introduce all kinds of legislation that will look sufficiently lefty. Um, and lefty is, can be just fine as long as it translates into something that's good in the general interest. But oftentimes he even will admit this, introduce legislation that isn't necessarily going to be good, but it helps protect his left flank. But on the other hand, what really matters to people like us is how is he going to vote in that legislature on a bill to, for example, liberate nurse practitioners mm -hmm. who nobody in his district will know anything about. This was a very important bill to govern for California. Uh, in California, until this bill passed, uh, California was one of only 22 states in the country that required nurse practitioners who are highly qualified medical personnel right. to practice in California. They had to be tethered to an MD. They basically had to pay tribute to that MD. It was almost like a, what we characterize as a semi-feudal system. And that kept a number of nurse practitioners from wanting to work in California. And it limited the supply, which raises costs and reduces access. So for 14 years, the Nurse Practitioners Organization, which is very small and weak, you know, fit and muscular in terms of uh, muscular strength in Sacramento, had pushed legislation to liberate them from that tether. California, government for California, which has become quite muscular up in Sacramento, got behind that bill in 2020, and it passed. Right. And people like Miguel Santiago are people who vote for legislation that is good for expanding access in their districts, even if nobody in their district will even understand what that bill is all about. That's the legislative temperament. It's very difficult. I mean, I, I am an autocratic, difficult person. The, the kind of person that, that does well in that district is a, well, Lyndon Johnson wasn't a nice guy, so I, maybe you can help me with this one. <laughs> but it is someone who can make all kinds of deals, can get along with all kinds of people, uh, suffer fools. Well, in theory, that should be Joe Biden. What's that? That should be Joe Biden in theory. Joe, oh, I think he probably would have been fantastic inside the legislature. Nobody was better than Johnson. Nancy Pelosi looks to be exceptionally good at it. Right. Okay. Uh, you should know I'm a recovering Sacramento and that back in the 1990s, I wrote speeches for then Governor Pete Wilson. So I look at Sacramento and I come to this largely from a communications challenge that when you're writing speeches and trying to get the governor out there, it's hard to get Californians to pay attention. Sacramento is largely out of sight and out of mind. It's a very funny thing. Sacramento always gets these backhanded compliments. You like it because it's an hour and a half from San Francisco. You like it because it's an hour from wine country. Nobody, nobody ever says you like living there. It's always that backhanded thing. Uh, but 
David, we live in rather interesting times. And one thing that's interesting, I find, is suddenly there are issues coming out of Sacramento that are quite relevant to your existence. And I don't want you to take a communication standpoint. I want you to explain the problem behind the policy here. So issue number one last week, University of California, Berkeley. State Supreme Court rules that Berkeley has to reduce about 3,000 freshman slots next year. Explain why Berkeley is in a financial jam right now. So uh, people often forget that the governor who signed this legislation, the California Environmental Quality Act, was Ronald Reagan. Um, And and CEQA has become a tool, which, you know, a lot of us, I mean, I was on the board of the Environmental Defense Fund. I I bet you everybody in this audience is a strong environmentalist, uh, cares about these issues. CEQA was passed with good intentions. Well, I actually don't know if it was. I wasn't paying attention then, but I assume it was with good intentions, environmental intentions. But it has been used by all kinds of different audiences in California to stop all kinds of things. And in this case, it's being used by residents in Berkeley who you cannot blame because they like their neighborhoods and they don't want more students in their neighborhoods. They don't want more people in their neighborhoods. So, again, you can't blame them, but they're using CEQA to stop the growth in the student population in that area. And that's a very difficult issue to address. Just the way housing has been difficult in California to address, because we all like our, I moved here 40 years ago and California had 20 million people back then. Right. Right. We all like our lives in California. And it's, so these interests, that is another thing that's very difficult for legislators to, to handle is how do you balance all these interests? But that's why there's this issue at, at UC Berkeley now. This is the first thing I try to explain to people. They always want to go back to the Pat Brown idea of the 1960s and free college and nothing. Said the state about 15 million people in it back then. So yeah. very different California. All right. So you see Berkeley. Second one, David EDD, the California Employment Development uh, Department. They lost about 20 billion dollars in phony unemployment claims. Yeah. So EDD, 20 billion the Employment Oops. Development Department. EDD, put aside the 20 billion dollars of fraud. We're talking about service. Uh, the worst possible service to some of the people who are facing the most frightening times of their lives. Mm -hmm. So just imagine what it would be like when unemployment went to 16% in California and everywhere, every state went to 16% when COVID hit and people who were legitimately entitled to unemployment benefits can't even get a response from the employment development department for three weeks. And we were tracking this math. We we could see response times because they're required under federal law They least responded to that. They're required under federal law to give response time. So we're tracking all this. And we even tried to help California in this regard. There's a state that actually did it well, Rhode Island, which is the exact opposite. It's a small state, but it also had the same scale problem. They went to 16% unemployment as well. They have the same legacy computers California has. Uh, What did they do? They cut a deal with Amazon Web, Web Service to build a new front end to give consumers a way to more to quickly reach the employment development department. Right. Something that everybody who faced, you know, we all faced this during the pandemic. We saw a lot of private enterprises build new front ends to accommodate this new form of demand. They even put the, the, the code online for other states to use. California didn't do it. So not only did they do ter- provide terrible service for people that were facing the most difficult times of their lives, they also ended up giving 20-plus billion dollars to people that weren't entitled to, including people on death row mm-hmm. and places like that. And there's no excuse for it, none. And that's an executive branch issue. And I don't know why they didn't do it. I, I honestly believe, had Governor, I had to be careful what I say here, but I, I believe that he wouldn't have been able to sleep at night had he known that people were not getting responses from the Employment Development Department at that time. Right. We're going to be nice to the governor, so I want to ask you the question about who paid for the French laundry dinner. You will. Sorry. I don't. <laughs> David gets enough heat as in. Uh, third issue for you, David, uh, single-payer care. So this is kind of like Charlie Brown and the football, and that each year the legislature says, by God, this is the year we're going to do single-payer care. This year they actually started putting a bill to play. Previously, when Jerry Brown was governor, Jerry would say, you show me how we're going to pay for it, and I'll think about it. That ended the conversation. But this year they decided we're going to force it. And what happened? It died in the assembly. So this is a very instructive moment uh, uh, because it wasn't even a real single-payer bill. And this is important for people to understand about the marketing of politics in California. The term single-payer polls incredibly well everywhere in the state. It's understandable because it seems really nice. You don't have to – you know, I'm on Medicare. My wife just got on Medicare. Just getting signing up for it was difficult and, yes. and arranging all that stuff. Wouldn't it be nice if you just didn't have to do any of that? And everybody – 
associates that with a single-payer system. Most people also associate it with Britain, which is also a single-provider system. The real single-payer systems in the world are Canada and Taiwan. They're the best examples. So that bill that was marketed as a single-payer bill was unlike any single-payer bill in the country. There's a section, if you want to read it, it's section 10610. It's a 67-page bill. So this is an example. We read all these bills. Mm-hmm. Um, section 10610 has to do with the governance, governance of California's single-payer system, what they characterize as that. It would have been governed by nine unelected people, six of whom would have come from the healthcare industry. So healthcare providers would have governed right. the healthcare system under which they've been receiving $400 billion a year. There's no single-payer system like that. In Taiwan, it's ministries. In Canada, it's ministries. It's even provincial in Canada. So it's not just national. Mm-hmm. So that kind of bill is very difficult for legislators to handle because in their districts, virtually everybody thinks this is a good idea all over the state. So they, there's a lot of pressure on legislators to pass it. In our case, listen, California already has, we are 94% of Californians are covered. Mm-hmm. And most of Europe, the universal coverage systems are not single payer, even though a lot of U.S. politicians cite continental European countries like Denmark. Those are multi-payer universal coverage systems. California is nearing, and to Governor Newsom's credit, his, his, his budget proposal this year would get us all the way there with a very tiny number of people who would not be covered using a multi-payer universal coverage system. That's a harder sell from a marketing standpoint to audiences to whom single-payer just polls well. So it got defeated, which we were pleased about, and we were active in that process. Uh, we want to see multi-payer, or we want to see high-quality universal coverage for Californians where people get great service at reasonable cost to taxpayers. So that measure, I think it was AB 1400, if I'm not Correct. mistaken. If you want to look it up, Assembly Bill 1400. Yeah. Uh, it, read it. 67 it, pages. Read it. It did It did not. Was Was there a committee debate before it was advanced, David? I don't think there was a debate on it, was yeah, there? Yeah, uh, there wasn't a debate. It went through the health care committee. Okay. The health committee. But it's very hard for those health committee members not to just vote it out and get it onto the floor. Right. Very hard. I'm right. telling you, the world they operate in, you have to be sympathetic to what it's like to be a legislator in California. Right. So related to that, uh, maybe you want to spend a minute explaining what GANDA is to these people. What, what is? Gut and amend. Oh, gut and amend. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, never heard it put that way. Thank you. See, I, I told you, I've been doing this now for 19 years, and I'm still learning new things. Gut and amend. Gut and amend. What is gut and amend? GANDA. So, so the legislature, as I mentioned, has already introduced 2,000 bills, right? Um, and they go through hearings and all the rest, and then they, they will adjourn. The budget has to be passed by June 15th by the legislature and signed by, by June 30th. Other legislation has to be out by the end of this, of this session, which is in September. The governor then has a month to sign the bills that are passed. So all these hearings, something will pass out of one body, a house, and go into the other house, and in that other house, late in the session, what some people will do, and this has happened with great frequency in California, is gut that bill and amend it to be something completely different, and then have it be voted on in the other body, and then quickly go back to the old body where it will be confirmed, and then go to the governor for signature. So, for example, and this, this, this I know that I make it more complicated, but this is, this is the way it works. Remember, legislators are trying to please each other all the time because to get anything done, they need the other person to support them. So they're scratching backs all the time, and you can't blame them. So last year, there was a bill to address beach erosion in California. That bill passed the Assembly. It went to the Senate, where it was gutted and amended to be a bill to provide a special waiver for Ventura County alone from California's new pension law that passed in 2012. (laughs) That bill in the old days would have passed. It would have passed in the Senate because the legislator, the senator who put it in, was doing a favor for another senator who, by the way, was entitled to something having served as a supervisor in that district. It was not very pretty. And then it would have passed because there's a lot of back scratching going on, gone back to the other body where it would have passed, gone to the governor who probably would have signed it because nobody's paying attention to this stuff and the legislators are doing each other a favor. Well, Governor for California, thanks, by the way, to a... We didn't even know about the bill. This will never happen again. We, we missed this bill. Thanks to a journalist, Dan Borenstein, uh, who, if you ever read Dan from, uh, from uh, the Mercury News or 
Contra Costa County News, right. wrote an article about it. We got involved and stopped that bill. And we didn't stop it because it was a bad bill, even though we do think it's a bad bill. We stopped it because it didn't go through the right process. And we simply said to the legislators in the Senate, don't let this bill go forward. Make them go through the process so it goes through hearings. And if it's not justifiable on its merits, fine. But there should be hearings and all the rest. That bill got stopped. They still haven't introduced it yet this year. We've been waiting for them to introduce it. The bill deadline has passed. We're waiting for them to try and get it in again this year, maybe in a committee or something like that. That's a gut and a men, and there have been lots of them. Okay. Uh, let's talk about a very big issue, homelessness. We have a question from the audience. Please address Governor Newsom's pledge to incarcerate mentally ill homeless population. This is the new CARE Courts proposal. CARE Courts, right. So we just read it. We've only read what the governor has proposed, which means we really don't know the proposal yet. And the legislature is going to have to get up to speed on it. We will be engaged in deep research on it. We honestly don't know what the best solution is for homelessness. N nobody really does. Um, we, we At Stanford, there will be a study coming out commissioned by some legislators that's being done this year, mostly in the spring, by some business school students on the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of homelessness spending to date. Mm -hmm. And the ideas that might or might not work. That's my Hoover colleague, Josh Rao. That's correct. Josh Rao's leading that. And um, and uh, so the answer is we're going to study it on its face. It seems like a thoughtful idea because everything that we've learned and we've only scraped the surface. So this is dangerous even saying it is that when people have substance abuse problems in particular, mm -hmm. they can't address those problems on a voluntary basis. If they if it's like. You can go get this service here and then come back if you want more of it, et cetera. Again, using Rhode Island as an example, which we've studied a lot of the stuff they've done over the years, they had good success with substance abuse with people that were already imprisoned. So anyway, we're going to study it. And we would be interested at Govern for California. If you go to governforcalifornia.org and you ever want to just write an email to info at governforcalifornia.org, uh, we're always interested in people's ideas about what can be done in these various policies. So let us know what you think. Okay, we had two questions regarding pensions. First of all, who decides where the California teachers' pension money is invested? Secondly, David, according to, I can't read this word, most state public employee pensions are about 80% funded now post-2018. How do you feel about them today versus just post-2008 crash? So on the first one, so uh, the investments are determined by the board of the California State Teachers Retirement System. Mm -hmm. The investment personnel at CalSTRS have been excellent over the years. They are good. They know what they're doing. I don't know if Chris Aylman is still running it, but they've they've done a, they've done as well as they can. But they've assumed that just to put giving an example, the year that they were assuming, well, just you do it now. The investment return assumption that they're making right now, which is the way they they base their contributions on that, and they're expecting to learn over the long term is like 7%. Warren Buffett, who runs defined benefit plans, identical defined benefit plans at Berkshire Hathaway for like Burlington Northern, which is a subsidiary of, um, of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, they, he's assuming 4.1% for an investment return assumption. Now, he's probably a better investor than the people at CalPERS or CalSTRS. So they're still assuming way too much. Right. On the funding ratio... This is where I can get very deep in the dive. That, those 80% funding ratio is a lie. That works. So what Bill is referring to, there's this common view that if a pension fund has assets equal to 80% of its liabilities, it's properly funded. Right. That is correct only when your discount rate for your liabilities is lower than your, I'm sorry, your disc, your, is lower than your investment return assumption, not equal to it. So at Berkshire Hathaway, for example, I just use it. They have a 4.1% investment return assumption. Their discount rate for the liabilities is 2.7% something or 2.3%. In that world, an 80 or 83% funding ratio is perfectly safe. Mm -hmm. CalPERS, I probably lost everybody by doing all this, but I have to say it. At CalPERS and CalSTRS, they use the same rate for discounting their liabilities as their investment return assumption. Mm -hmm. In that world, the only time you are safe is when you are 100% funded. Right. So never believe an 80% funded ratio in the public sector unless you can confirm they're using different rate, rates for discounting and investment return. What is California's current? They're never going to have me back here. I right. just want to say, after that answer, <laughs> I just want to point out, this that is what, they're going to still talk about it 20 years from now. You remember the guy that was on stage and talking about discount rates to our audience? 
No, just the kids go to Stanford. They're not going to take any public policy courses. I <laughs> That's think. right. But, uh, what is California's public pension debt right now, David? And how do you convince your honest Abe's to go after it? Because if you fiddle with pensions, somebody suffers. So using the proper discount rate, mm-hmm. uh, California's public pension debt, they're, the unfunded, the difference between the assets set aside to meet the liabilities mm-hmm. is a trillion dollars, more than a trillion dollars. But I wouldn't even focus on that. I'd focus on just the growth in spending on pensions over the last decade. Because right. people, when I was on that board, I talked about there's going to be a pension problem in the future if we don't do this. Mm-hmm. But that, that happened. Pension costs in school districts more than tripled. Uh, you know, in the last decade, in, in less than the last decade, they more than tripled. So it takes SFUSD. Go look at the spending for SFUSD, San Francisco Unified School District, and you will see that it's spending on pensions more than tripled over the last decade. That is money that comes directly out of classrooms, that comes directly out of teacher salaries. So don't even think about future pension debt. That's happened already, and you ain't seen nothing yet. And not just because the stock market went down 800 points today or whatever it did, or we're in a bear market or the NASDAQ is down 20%. That will contribute to all that. But just so you understand, pension costs will continue to rise even if the stock market never declines again. And that's because of that discount rate investment return assumption issue. So you will have continuing increases in pension costs. It'll be worse when stock markets decline, but they will continue to crowd out spending. Uh, so in, uh, there's a slide, actually, that we have, which could show you the increase. I, I don't know if we want to bore them even further with that slide that we, that we have if they want. But it can show you that pension costs grew at like more than two to three times the rate the general fund revenues grew in California. So that will continue to happen over time, no matter what. Then your question was, what can you do about it? Well, that's the question, uh, and related to that, I want to ask you another follow-up. But, yeah, if you go after pension reform, you're either going to ask people to put more into the pension or you're going to take back their benefits. So um, before you even get to pension reform, there's another post-employment benefit, which is easy to address and is a larger debt in California than even the general obligation bond debt that has been approved by voters. That is known as OPEP, Other Post-Employment Benefits. And using SFUSD as an example, again, that's where they're spending money, about $30 million this year, to pay for uh, health care for retired employees. Even retired employees who are entitled to Medicare or could get Medicare or who could get Obamacare subsidies. And that's, that is another benefit which California could be saving billions of dollars a year just by accessing federal subsidies mm-hmm. that are already in existence. And other states are already doing that. Pensions, uh, they... Uh, the way you address that is the only state that's really done it seriously, again, is uh, Rhode Island, where Gina Raimondo, who's now the Commerce Secretary, uh, did a reform in 2012 where they uh, effectively they cut the COLA, mm-hmm. the rate at which the, the benefits rise, and they reduced benefits for current employees for years not yet worked. And those will both be big battles that will reach their courts in California eventually. Speaking of Abe Lincoln's, uh, one of our audience members asked, is Phil Ting an Abe Lincoln? Assemblyman Phil Ting. Yes, so Phil is chair of the, Senate, of the Assembly Budget Committee, very important position. And full disclosure, we give money to Phil, we give money to about 100 of the 120 legislators. By the way, all the donations are public. You can see donations made by any government for California chapter if you go to Cal Access. And, and I urge you to do this, to look at donations to, le- to your legislators. Um, he has a very tough job representing San Francisco, uh, you know, in a world where Twitter says one thing, where you're trying to do something, you know, good for your citizens in reality, etc. I think he's doing the best job he can, and he, it, it, they can all do better jobs, just so you understand, if they get liberated from dependence on special interests. And this is a very important point that I don't think I made clearly before. Mm-hmm. We, sep- we support legislators who we don't agree with on a lot of issues. I mentioned that part. The key reason we do that is we're just trying to help liberate them from their dependence upon the prison guards or corporations or healthcare corporations or others for the support they need, because they need to raise money to help other legislators. And this is very important. Watch and see the donations to, that your legislator, use Phil, for example, he's making donations to other legislators. You do that in order to increase your influence with those other legislators. They all learned it from Lyndon Johnson. Um, 
by giving them, helping give them money that they can use to do that, they don't have to give that money, get that money from special interests. And they have to raise money from somebody. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason we do it. And we will end up giving money to people who do things a lot that we don't like. Okay. Uh, related to money and politics, what do you think of publicly financed elections? Well, it's a good example. Uh, it, first of all, I, I don't believe, I don't share the view that it's a good idea. It'll always be gamed. And you can see it, for example, in San Francisco, where we have public financing of elections. And Phil Ting is a good example. Phil ran, if I remember correctly, for mayor when he didn't have a shot, I think, to become mayor, got public money to do it. He raised his, pro, his profile by doing so, and that helped him to run for assembly. So I, I, I believe people should have skin in the game. It's not that people are getting – you'll notice billionaires don't win in politics generally. The people that win in politics are the persistent players. Our model is SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, who we are allied with on some issues and opposing on other issues. They're phenomenally good at what they do. And what they do is not a huge amount of money, but it's persistent. So, you know, it's not so much about the money. It's much more about the persistence. Okay, question, David. How does governance relate to this? Highest tax, highest, highest taxes, both so performance and education, literacy, infrastructure, et cetera. 30 seconds or less. <laughs> uh, the highest taxes part. So the slide that I should have shown you earlier would show you that taxes have gone way up. Revenues are way up. We've doubled spending on pupils. We've doubled spending per pupil over the last decade. Right. We've doubled spending on Medi-Cal, which is a very important service for Californians. You wouldn't believe the amount we spend on prisons, et cetera. And service is lousy. Pub- school performance hasn't improved. Pupils' lives are not good. Teachers' lives are not good. And the money isn't making to it to them, to, to them. The reason it's not making it to them is partly because of pensions, partly because of retiree health care, partly because of unwarranted salary increases for prison guards. And if you want to learn, go to Government for California, go to the news section and look up the prison guard compensation study that we did. We commissioned a third party to do, and it will blow you away when you see that your prison guards got a $500 million a year salary increase last June when they were already the highest paid prison guards in the country by far. That money that is being paid isn't making it to services. And then in the public school area, and this might upset some people when I say this, that is compounded by the fact that there's a monopoly in place. So when I use Medicare, right, I'm I'm being my medical care is being paid for by the taxpayers now. Mm -hmm. My wife, who contributed less to it than me, is also having it paid by the taxpayers. We can choose any provider. We can go to this hospital or this doctor or that doctor. But public schools in California operate differently. 90% of students have to go to a government provider of schools. And my own view is, I don't even like to call them charters, Mm -hmm. non-government operated schools. More competition in that area would provide more options for students. That would be a good thing. Just like I have with Medicare. I'm looking at that little red sign back that says one, one minute left. This seems like the right question to end on. As a California constituent, how can we keep the legislature accountable to represent our interests, given the overwhelming number of bills in Sacramento? How can we keep track? So I, I will tell you, I don't want to pitch government for California. You can do your own thing. You, you can, I, I will pitch government for California. It, you know, it, it, that's a good thing. And you should look at that. But a small pack, believe it or not, uh, a tiny pack in Sacramento, a tiny $100,000 a year. For a state of 40 million people, that's not that much money. A political action committee that you, with all your friends and your cousins and your neighbors and all the rest, if you were to create one and each contribute $100 a year so that somehow it gets up so that there's fifty dollars to $100,000 a year in it every year, and it's a single issue, let's say, pack, and you focus on legislators, and legislators know you will always be there, you will actually become powerful in Sacramento. You will not become powerful just by voting. You will not become powerful just by reading or going to events like this, which are great. Um, You know, I think if you read de Tocqueville, you read Democracy in America, which is always a a good thing to reread when he he, visited the United States in 1835. We were, as he described it, a country of 24 sovereign nations, which were 27 then, sovereign nations, which were states. And people were deeply involved in the politics of their local governments and their state governments. And that's what you have to do. So that's all I can say. Good. David, I wish we could talk longer, but time is up tonight. Thanks for all you're doing on behalf of the state of California. Thank you. It was fun. I want to thank everyone. I want to... 
want to thank everyone who joined us here in prison tonight and online for this important Commonwealth Club program. This program and others like it will soon be online at the club's website. I'd also like to again thank the Ken and Jackie Broad Family Fund for its support of this program. I'm Bill Whalen. I painfully aware I do not have a gavel to do this, but this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.